Hey, it's Jackie, and we are on the sixth episode of our in our series on body image. And if you've listened to any of those other episodes, you know, you know that both our culture and faith communities communicate that the meaning of the female body is about being thin, sexy, young, getting the man, and having babies. And that story has wreaked havoc on us women, hasn't it? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not against thin, sexy, young, or babies, but the story just isn't big enough. It's not complex enough to capture what it actually means to walk around in this world, in our bodies. Now, I by no means have all the answers to the meaning of the body, but what I do have is bigger questions. Questions that go beyond, are my legs tall or tan enough? Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Welcome, welcome back. Now, I would recommend you put your seatbelts on because we're going to enter into some fast and heavy theology. We're going to open up with Paul. We're going to move to Genesis, and then we're going to come back at the end with Paul. I'm going to start in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 and 2, because that's where the Apostle Paul says, Dear brothers and sisters, which I need to pause here, by the way, whenever you read one of Paul's epistles and you see it says in the greeting, brothers, you automatically should include sisters. The translators chose the word brother, but when the original audience heard it, they understood it included the women. Let's be sure we include the women. Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk as though you belonged to this world or as though you were like infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger. Now, I mention that because when I read that and apply it to our understanding of the body, I take it to mean it's time to move past the questions like, are we skinny, sexy, and young enough? And to move on to meatier things, meatier questions like, if we're going to talk about the body image, what exactly does our body image? What's it all about here in the in and now, right? And what about the future in the new heavens and new earth? Especially since scripture seems to say that I'm gendered, but not married and not having babies. So what's my body all about? Meteor questions. Now, I have some answers to those questions, but I'll be honest with you. I think I'm just starting to scratch the surface of the meaning of our bodies. There's so much more to discover, but I think there are a few clues. Um, like for example, in the creation story, we've always got to start 
with our start, our beginning, to understand God's intention for society. And in Genesis 1, 26 through 31, we read this statement. God says, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now, I tried to emphasize the word us and our because it's referencing the Godhead. We tend to say it like this, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. What I want you to see is that in the very beginning, God is fundamentally relational. He doesn't exist outside of community. And that's telling us something about who God is and what it means to reflect who God is. Because remember, it said in that sentence that we're God's image bearers. Take note, the body images God, right? And as God's image bearers, we possess some of God's communicable attributes. We talked about this in the last episode on body image. And I would argue that relationality, this idea of being intimate with one another, this basic human need we have for relationships, for knownness, is one of the fundamental ways in which we image who God is. Now, I'm not a beautiful wordsmith, so I always love when authors or speakers uh, put words to, to concepts that's like, yes, that's it. And I love how Lillian Barger, and I've mentioned her before, she wrote the book Eve's Revenge. And in that book, she talks a lot about the female body. So I'd highly recommend it. I love how she says it. She says, the creator has no body. The divine intent is that the body be an active agent in communicating the image of God. Our bodies mediate personality, emotions, and creativity. All communicate attributes of God. Our bodies make us present, even as God is present in a particular place of belongings. Every single human being reminds us of God's presence through the presence of his or her body. Our face-to-face way of relating makes us personal in all of our dealings. Thus, to have a body is to make ourselves known. To have a body is to make ourselves known. And I was thinking about this idea of creation, we're going to get into that in just a little bit. I'm going to dig even deeper, but this idea of creation, let us make male and female in our image, and then this this framework that Lillian says in that quote, and I was thinking about this past year, and all the social limitations and isolation and how so many of us found ourselves battling anxiety or higher levels of anxiety or depression much more suicidal thoughts and the suicidal rates went up and there's been an excessive amount of drinking. I know because you've been telling me. There's been a lot of loneliness. This thing called skin hunger. I love that term. There's been a lot of skin hunger. You know what I'm talking about. And when I think of that term, this idea of skin hunger, it makes me think of the story in the woman, of the woman who bled for 12 years in Luke 8. I think it's 8, 43 through 48, somewhere around there. And because of her bleeding for 12 years, she most likely was isolated from others for 12 years. Yeah, you thought a year was bad. <laughs> Just imagine, 12. 12 years of skin hunger. 
That explains her desperation, doesn't it? Because she decides to sneak through the crowd. Now, you've got to see the scene because there's a huge crowd. And she sneaks through. Now, she's not supposed to be around other people. And she's definitely not supposed to touch other people. She'll make them unclean. And she certainly isn't to touch a rabbi and make him unclean. And so here she is. She's sneaking through this crowd thinking if she can just touch the fringe, and I love that, just the fringe of Jesus' robe she'd be healed. And I love this because she's hoping like crazy no one sees her. She's just going to grab a touch, get healed, and head on out. And then Jesus does this thing, this first call-out culture, if you want. He says, who touched me? Now, why did Jesus do that? He knew who touched him. I mean, he's God. I, I think because Jesus knows how crucial it is for us humans to be in community. In fact, he knows that much of our healing from the brokenness in us and around us that happens to us happens, we get healed, healthy, well-being happens a lot of times just from being in community. It's how he wired us. So he calls her out. He addresses her with this very familiar term, daughter. Only time Jesus calls someone daughter, daughter. Now, what's he doing with that? Why does he call her daughter? Well, I think he's actually saying it publicly so that everybody around him will see he's identifying himself with her, the rabbi. Uh huh. I'm aligning myself with her like she's part of my family. It's almost as if he's saying, hey, all of you who have kept her on the outside because she's unclean, time to bring her in, time to bring her home. Social healing, if you will. And I wonder what it must have felt like for her to walk through the front door of her house and be hugged for the first time in years. What did it feel like to sit at the kitchen table with her friends and her family, just eating delicious olives and cheese and drinking wine while laughing or crying? I'm not sure. What must it have been like for her to tuck in her daughter that night? And to kiss her on the forehead. Good night, sweet child. See, this, this is one of the reasons that God gave us a body. In the body, in community comes healing and health and well-being, right? You know that. I know that. We've experienced it. Sometimes we forget it. Sometimes we forget the value of it. And instead, we walk around and we fret over whether eyelashes are long enough. Really? Isn't it time we start eating meat and stop just drinking milk? Barger so beautifully captures this when she says, the body becomes the bridge between the self and the other, reenacting our entry into community. Whether that be the act of sex or in our being present. And I want to be mindful. Being present means you're there both in body and soul. Because you can be present in the body but have your mind somewhere totally somewhere else. And that's not really present, is it? Being present, mind, body, and soul. Right? This human capacity to give the body self to another reflects the self-giving of God to humanity. Body connection is the basis, not only for marriage, it's actually the basis for all of our human relationships. And that is exactly what God was trying to show us through our creation story. 
in Genesis 2.24, here we go, we're going to dig in a little deeper about this idea of the body facilitating relationships, knownness, connectedness, all of these things that we actually need to thrive as human beings. Genesis 2.24, God declared, it's not good for man to be alone. And most of you who've heard me teach, you know that this is the first time that God ever says something wasn't good. And by the way, this isn't in Genesis chapter 3 where there's a fall, where sin enters, where brokenness enters. No, no, this is before that. It says something's not good. So we have to ask, what's not good? It's aloneness. So the answer to aloneness is what? Well, some theologians would tell you it's leadership. And, sub- and submission or subordination by having a woman created. Well, not really, because leadership and submission is not what's happening here. The answer to aloneness, the problem, is knownness, right? Coming into community, into intimacy with another. So he says, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper who is just right for him. Genesis 2, 18. In the Hebrew, that word um, just right for him or suitable helper is ezer kenego. And I'm going to dive into that in just a second. The word suitable, kenego, means corresponding partner. Or it can even may mean um, like face-to-face opposition. I love that. It's like this kind of rubbing up against each other causing friction, you know. I love how one rabbinical commentator says it. And I hope I get this right because I think this is so beautiful. He says, helper actually means against him. Why against him? He goes on to explain. From the beginning, Genesis teaches us how to be human together. Think about that statement. Genesis teaches us how to be human together. Personally, I think Jesus teaches us that too. Genesis teaches us how to be human together. This teaches us a model of friendly antagonism, one in which in order to support you, I challenge you. My inventions are for the sake of friendship so that your thinking is clarified, your ideas refined with the bounds of our conversation. The first couple are also the first friends, the first strangers, the first to encounter one another. What does it mean to disagree for the sake of the other? rather than in order to defeat or silence the other. Yeah, so this idea of antagonism, otherness, that rubbing against each other actually makes us more whole. There's so many nuances to this concept of Ezer Kanego, but certainly we could say that her presence was an invitation for him to come out of himself and into otherness, to turn away from his aloneness and independence toward face-to-face relationships and the mystery of interdependence. Now, I have to pause here because whenever we hear that word suitable helper or the word helper, um, most of you don't walk around hearing it said as easier can I go. Uh, You you have um, an image in your head. Uh, the, The word helper, unfortunately, I think is a bad translation. In our world, that word helper makes us think of a little girl helping mom bake cookies or a woman who undergirds the boss by answering the phone or taking notes. And, and that type of thinking about who woman is has really impacted us, hasn't it? And not for the better. That word easer, helper, is used 21 times in the Old Testament. 
of which 16 are used to express God as Israel's helper. Of those 16 references, helper corresponds to the words such as protector, provider, deliverer, rescuer, and strength warrior. So let me ask you, when's the last time you heard a preacher say that the woman was the provider or the protector? Yeah, probably not very often because today those terms are associated with masculinity. The point is, when you hear a suitable helper, I want you to know this is not a child helping mom bake cookies, nor is it a woman answering the phone for her boss. When you hear the word suitable helper, you need to recognize that woman is easer, a woman of strength and valor. That's what that word means. Okay, little side note there. It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him an easer canego. And then after man names the animals, and I won't go into all of that right now, but that is something significant also, um, he puts man asleep. God puts man asleep. And I want you to picture that because I think sometimes we've heard this story so often we forget to picture what's actually happening there. So I want you to see the scene. You, you've got some ground, right? I don't know. In every picture we've ever seen, there's a tree with an apple. There's nothing in the Genesis story tells us that it's an apple tree, but whatever, whatever you need to be in your scene. Okay, so you've got it. God is there. Now, I don't know what God looks like. The scripture doesn't tell us. You can make him look any way you want, but God's there. And so is man. God's standing. Man is asleep on the ground. And the text tells us, Genesis 2, 21, that while the man slept, the Lord took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. And I'm not going to finish the sentence yet. You know what it says. But I want us to pause for a moment before we read the rest of the sentence. And I want to ask you, what do you see? You see man asleep and God is awake. Where's woman? Where's the woman? What's she doing? Yeah, the reason I ask you this is because I want you to see that woman is with God before she is ever with man. Woman was with God before she was ever with man. And that's really important because we talk about being made for relationships. What I want you to understand is as a woman, and this is true of men also, but as woman, our first and foremost relationship we were birthed for was God, was to be in relationship with God. And I just wonder, how long was she there with God? before man was woken up. I don't know, five minutes, five hours, five months. We don't really know. The scripture doesn't tell us. And I'm afraid that sometimes when we read the black and white print on a piece of paper, we can read it in nanoseconds, and we just think that the occurrence, the story, actually happened in nanoseconds. But it didn't. It happened in time over time. And so how long was she there? And what are they talking about? I mean, I'd have a lot of questions. And let me just, like, here's here's how I want you to think about it. You read that sentence, and I'm asking you to pause, and I'm asking you to stretch your thinking a little bit, aren't I? I'm asking you to image woman with man, with God first. It's like if I said to you, this morning I woke up, had coffee, and went to work. I said that to you very quickly, didn't I? And you heard it really quick. Um, It takes seconds to hear that. 
But the truth is, you know, if I make you stop and pause and think, you know it didn't sequentially go just like that in seconds. You know that I had to put my feet on the ground from the bed and I had to get up and I had to take a shower and get dressed and have coffee and feed the dog and get my bags all set to carry down to the car and then drive to work, right? There was this whole process and time lapse between those two things of coffee and work. And so it is in this verse. Woman was with God before she was ever with man. And I like how Carolyn Custis James says it. And she's the author of many books that I love. But in this, is, this, this quote is actually in Half the Church, her book called Half the Church. She says, Eve was created to know and walk with God and to make him known to others by reflecting his character in her life. By naming us as his image bearers, God has made a relationship with himself as the strategic center of his purpose for you and for humanity and for the world. And now we can finish the sentence. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and brought her to the man. And the man responds, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Now, here's what I want you to pause and think about. She doesn't say anything. He says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. But she never said to him, hey, dude, in case you don't notice, looking at me, I'm more like you than any other creature God made. No, she doesn't say anything. Her bodily presence informs him. Her body spoke without words. Carlo Maria Martinez says, the body has a precise word inscribed in it. This word is other. It is a calling for other. The body becomes itself in the face of the other by relating to the other. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things I know about my body, about your body, is it actually is the agency that allows us to move into deep, intimate knownness. And I know, like I know, that I am made for that, that I need that. It may scare the hell out of me, but I know in order to flourish, I need it. And so do you. And that, that is one of the meanings of having a body. And isn't this exactly why Jesus came in a body? I mean, yes, I know. He came so he could die on the cross, but but, but, I got it. But think about it. Jesus, who stood outside of time, came in a body. Why? Well, Scripture tells us so that we could know who God is. See, God is spirit, which means he doesn't have a body. He's neither male nor female. That blows people's minds when I tell people, God is not male. Now, I'm not saying that. It says in John, the Gospel of John, that God is spirit. It's hard to know a spirit. You can't hear their voice. You can't distinguish their tone. You, you can't tell whether they're mad or happy. You can't see them roll their eyes at some stupid joke or the smile when they're proud of you. You can't listen to what's on their mind you, while you make s'mores around the campfire. You, you, you don't know their favorite meal and wine because they can't tell you, right? So there needs to be a body. Scripture said Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling. That word is actually tabernacle. Hold on to that because we're going to talk about it later. His dwelling among us, John 1.14. Colossians 1.15 says Jesus is the visible image 
of the invisible God. In Colossians 2.9, it says, In Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. John 1.18 says, The incarnate Christ revealed God to us. Scripture is clear. Jesus took on a body so that we could know who God is. We could know about God. We could actually know God. I tell people all the time, if you want to know God, just follow Jesus around in the scriptures. Watch what he does, how he loves, what he says. Jesus' message of justice and mercy and grace and love and every other concept that he embraced, all of it is demonstrated in and through his incarnated human body. That's God in the flesh. See, the body matters. Jesus' body mattered. Your body matters. It's interesting in John chapters 14 through 16, I think it is, Jesus spends two chapters talking about the Holy Spirit coming. He's preparing his disciples for his leaving, for his departing. And he goes on to this long discourse. It's the longest recorded discourse we have of Jesus about his leaving and what he's going to do about it. And I want you to think about the disciples over this time while they're sitting with Jesus and he's having this conversation with them because they have walked with Jesus. They have talked with him and and they have eaten around the fire with him. And I think they farted during the fire time. I mean, it's a bodily function. They've laughed with Jesus. They've given up a lot to follow Jesus. They've become accustomed to being with God in flesh. They'd put their hope in his bringing around freedom. And now he says he's leaving and they freak out. And I would have too. And what Jesus does next is really telling. He assures them that he's not going to leave them orphaned, that he'll send another just like him, the Holy Spirit. And then we have this whole discourse on the Holy Spirit coming. And this spirit would guide them and continue to reveal Jesus to them. He'd still be with them. And he does this, right? He goes this long discourse with patience and explanation because, because he knew his disciples, whom he really loved, were freaking out. And they were freaking out because the disciples know what we know, and that is relationships change when the body isn't present. Whether that be a friend that moves halfway across the country or a job change that removes us from our coworkers, I'm not saying the relationship is over but it changes, doesn't it? Why? You can't read the body anymore. I think those of us who have had a loved one pass know that better than anyone else, right? I'll never forget the day my friend Tracy took her last breath. Tracy had battled cancer for five years, and on August 9th, 2016, at the age of 52, I'm 55, Somber, (laughs) sobering, isn't it? Um, At the age of 52, with her father's hands coupling her face, she passed. I met Tracy through her sister, Kelly. Kelly and I are really good friends. And Kelly and Tracy were like two sisters. Like I, I used to say they were twins. They were each other's person. And on August 9th, I arrived at Tracy's bedside before Kelly. And I will never forget the gut wrenching wail that came out of Kelly's body when she walked into that room. 
She was like a mother convulsing over the loss of a child. See, when we lose a loved one, it becomes abundantly clear what the body is all about. Suddenly, we could care less if their hair wasn't cut perfectly or if they had a few extra pandemic pounds. We'd give anything, anything to have that body back. Why? Well, because we know we have memories of this person and we have artifacts of this person. We can even probably still hear their, phone, their voice on their cell phone, right, if we keep their cell phone going. But we know we can no longer build more memories, no longer laugh together and touch each other and dream together and cry with one another. That has been taken away because the body is gone. And so there's this pain sometimes excruciating pain when a person's body is no longer present with us. Way back in the earlier podcast, I asked you to think about, I'm switching gears. I just realized I should probably tell you that. I just went from Paul to Genesis, and now I'm moving back to Paul. Way back in an earlier podcast, I asked you what verses, if anything, your faith community used to talk to you about your body, particularly the female body, because the church actually talks more about the female body than it does the male body. And when I say talk, I'm talking about messages that are said and then messages that are communicated that are not said. And when I asked that, I suspect a lot of you bounce to 1 Corinthians 6.19. And that's where that, that verse says, our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And in context of that passage, and this is usually how it's taught, Paul is saying that we should keep our body from sexual sin. And so that's usually how we hear it, sexual sin and the female body. But what I want you to know is that the audience that heard Paul say this, they would have heard way more than just the body and sexual sin. And because they understood, right? So you have to remember, they lived in a time in which they understood what the temple was. Like they saw the temple. They experienced the temple. And they would have immediately had thoughts about, well, first and foremost, about the portable tabernacle that we read about in Exodus, right? The, the, the Israelites walked through the wilderness and they had this portable tabernacle that when they got to Israel and they became permanent in that land, they built the temple in Jerusalem. Um, by the way, it's interesting. In John chapter 1, 14, Jesus is introduced as the son of God who tabernacled. Remember I used the word dwelled? It actually means tabernacled among God's people. And later in chapter 2, Jesus himself identifies himself as the temple. So both the tabernacle and then later the temple are these places where God's presence dwells. That's significant. The design of the tabernacle and then later the temple was God's idea. He initiated it. He was very specific of how he wanted it to be built. It was to be a place. They were both to be places that testified about God's character. They were to display wealth and beauty. They were projects that involved extensive, expensive materials designed in such a way to create a great piece of artwork. That should make you think of something else I said previously in the last podcast. This concept around the word masterpiece that we read, right? In Ephesians 2.10, we are God's masterpiece. 
If you didn't hear that one, you need to go back and listen to that idea about this concept of masterpiece because it's one of the side posts to the meaning of our bodies. Yeah, so the temple, right? It's a beautiful piece of artwork designed by God in order to testify about God. By the way, this is probably a good time to remind you, I would really appreciate if you'd pass this on to a friend who might also be dealing with issues of body image and need to restructure, re, you know, reject and reinvent a new way to live in their body. Would you be willing to like pass this on to them? And if you have time, I'd love for you to go and subscribe to this podcast, Jackie Always Unplugged. And if you want to do more work on body image, you can always go over to my website, themarcellaproject.com, and register for our mini online course on body image. Paul. Paul says we're God's temple. We're his artwork. We display his wealth and his beauty. We testify to his character. Our bodies manifest the unseen realities of God. Seeing our bodies lead others to know who God is, what he's like, how he acts, what he thinks, how he works. I mean, have you ever considered the marvel of our body? That we could do so much on just how the body heals and, and the marvel of the body I'll just give you a few examples that should blow you out of the water. The human nose can distinguish 10,000 different smells, including some chemicals present in only one part of 400 million parts air. We have 9,000 taste buds in our mouth and over 400 touch cells per square inch of skin. We can feel pressure on our face that decompresses the skin of only point. Zero, 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 four of an inch. Our brain, they say, they may not be talking about mine, but our brain is the most complex arrangement of matter ever discovered in the universe. Yeah, your brain, my brain. We're the only species with the gift of language. The brain is capable of thinking 800 words per minute. I was thinking about the brain and the body just recently because my son Hampton was staying um, in Austin with us for a while and he was sharing how he's really struggling with sleeping. And so I did what all of us moms do. I Googled. I Googled all kinds of sentences. Sleepness, you know, sleeping, uh, struggle with sleeping, you know, all this stuff. And I discovered all this fascinating, I couldn't help Hampton at all, but I, I, I discovered interesting things about our amazing body like Did you know that when we sleep, there are all these biological processes happening? The brain stores new information and gets rid of toxic waste. Nerve cells communicate and reorganize. Cells are repaired, energy restored, and the brain releases molecules like hormones and proteins all while we're sleeping. Yeah. It's it's just, if you stop sometimes and think, it's, it's magnificent. Our bodies are amazing. We could almost say they're masterpieces. Yes, see, our body reflects the glory of God. Your body reflects God's glory. That's what Paul means when he says that we're God's temple. That's what Paul means when he says we're God's masterpiece. Our bodies say something to the world about who God is. This is why your body matters. This is why 
my body matters. Not some elusive, skinny, sexy, young, thin body. The body I actually have matters. So what would happen if we actually lived in our body like that was true? What difference would it make? I, I, I suggested earlier in one of our podcasts that maybe one of the ways we could start to learn to live better in our bodies, to be, to be grateful for the one we actually live in, is, is to stand naked in front of a mirror and just thank Jesus for every part of our body. And there will be no shaming, no degrading, no hemming and hawing, just thank you, Jesus. How can we start to live more differently? Like, like, like we actually embrace the body we have. That's one way we can do it. We can actually stand naked in front of the mirror and thank Jesus. So one last observation about the body. And again, I don't mean to imply I've exhausted the meaning. I certainly have. There's so much more to discover. But I want to end for now with this one idea. Work. Yeah, the body allows us to work. In Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. I take that to mean that God's got things for us to do. We call that work. Now, I need to give a caveat here because unfortunately, I think our idea of work is quite limited. Um, We tend to think of work as a place we go, a position we hold, and a paycheck we get. That's lovely. That is one way we work. But most of us do all kinds of work that include none of those things. And I have a whole series on women's work in our I'm Enough Masterclass. And again, you can find that on themarcellaproject.com. But let me just say this. In the beginning, God created us to be like him, to work. God worked. He created. And he asks us to do the same on his behalf. We have... He, he, we are to carry out his power and his authority. We are to represent. We are to steward on his behalf. There are three words that capture, if you will, the work we see in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, the first one is the word rule. Yes. Genesis 1 and 2 says that women rule. Just read the text. Read it over again. Read it slowly. Because we've been so told we don't that we go right past it. It says rule, subdue, and create. And I love this idea of making and creating, filling the earth, God says. That means to create societies, civilizations, and that that requires like language and art and dance and wine and innovation and roads and buildings. And if you've heard me talk in my last episode on body image when we talked about Psalm 139 and this idea around masterpiece, you know that that means that we do that, each of us do that in our own one-of-a-kind, never-to-be-seen-again-in-history, image-bearing female or male bodies. We work. And I was thinking about um, a long time ago, I... I struggled with depression. I've struggled with it since. But the first time it happened, I didn't know what was happening to me. And I, I, I kept saying there's this little black cloud. And, I, you know, I was trying to describe what was happening. And it was I was depressed. And I was laying on the couch and I was thinking, 
I wasn't able to do anything. Um, and I, and I felt very unproductive and, and it was impacting my self-esteem not to be able, if you will, work. Um, and there were all kinds of things that Jesus wanted to talk to me about in that, in that time frame. But I was very mindful of how I actually like having something to do. And I like being able to do it in my body and how that does fulfill something in me, whether I get paid for it or have a position or not. And I think that's probably something that's quite human. This, this knowing we have a purpose, whatever that may be. And that's why I'm very careful to limit when I talk about what, what work actually looks like. Um, but I think it's so crucial, right? It, it, we need to work, however that work may be. We need to work, and we do that in our bodies. And again, remember the body doesn't, we're not just talking about the material skin on us. We're talking mind, body, and soul, everything that captures who we are in our flesh. So here's, here's the thing. When Jesus came, he launched the kingdom of God on earth. This new society was started, right? We would experience, we'll, we'll experience the full kingdom later, but right now, the kingdom has begun. There is a taste of it happening on earth. And in Luke 4, 18 through 19, he lays out this eschatological, that means our future state, of kingdom realities, like what life is going to be like in this society. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then in verse 20, Jesus said, those kingdom realities start now. He says, today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, here's the deal. That's like the reality that we actually live and move in. That's our real reality. If you are a Christ follower, that's your reality. And our bodies enable us to join in Jesus's mission of bringing forth the kingdom on earth as it already is in heaven, right? Justice and grace and mercy and love, the ability to redeem and restore brokenness where sin has created decay, destruction, death. We are called, we get the privilege of bringing forth a taste of kingdom realities in this age, now, in this world, now. You know, just before Jesus died, he told his followers, whoever believes in me will do the works I have done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. That's John 14, 12. Just sit on that for a minute. Whoever believes in me will do the works I have done and even greater works. Later in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, Jesus calls the disciples into this incarnational bodily ministry, meaning actively engaging the body in the work of carrying out the gospel. He says, go, join in the ongoing incarnational ministry mission of God. I love how Michael Frost says it. He's one of my favorite authors, and he wrote one of my favorite books called The Incarnate. He says, the disciples bear the bodily weight of truth, carrying the gospel in both word and deed in their lifestyle and the rhythms of their collective life. See, we Christians, we literally are called to physically, emotionally, relationally, financially, socially live 
in a new way with God and each other and in the self and in this creation in which we live and move. That's what the first disciples were called to, and that's what we're called to, to live like Jesus in our bodies. See, our bodies really matter because they enable us to do good things that God planned for us to do a long time ago. Now, I know there is so much more to talk about when we come talk about this bodily image. And I think next week, I'm at, or the next episode, I'm actually going to tackle this idea of ableism in our society. What happens when the body isn't fully functioning like the body is supposed to, or as society expects the body to fully function? Which if anybody's gone through menopause or had a period or had a baby or struggled with depression, you all know that at one time or another, we're not fully functioning the way society expects us to right? We're going to talk a little bit about that. And then I also want to talk about like desire, this idea of it's, it's normal to desire. What do we do with our bodies when we desire um, to be known even sexually? So I've got some thoughts. I really got no answers, but I got a whole lot of thoughts I've been thinking about and I'd love to dialogue with. That's where we're going. Um, Again, I would love to invite you to engage in this conversation about these meatier questions that we're after when it comes to body image. Feel free to go over to Jackie Always Unplugged Facebook group page and just post something on there so we can talk together. We learn better collectively. So here's the deal. And I kind of want to close with this. We live and breathe in a culture where the rewards for a particular body type are real thin, sexy, young, better pay, better promotion. They get people and partners. There's no denying there's a reality to this thing. But this quote-unquote reality we're living in doesn't align with what God says about my body and about your body. So we have a problem of which reality we're going to choose to live in. It's like if I said, hey, I'm an American. That's an everyday reality. But Philippians 3.20 also informs me that I'm a true citizen. My true citizenship is in heaven. And the Apostle Peter in, Peter 1, in 1 Peter 1.1 1, 1, reminds me that I am a foreigner living in exile like Jesus, until Jesus returns. Now, I don't know about you, but as I move around in Austin, Texas, I don't feel like a foreigner living in exile. Do you? No. There's this reality, and then there's this reality. And we have to keep reminding ourselves, which reality will we align ourselves with? We are new in Christ, and we align ourselves with Christ's story, and we do that with our bodies. So here I am, every day and every week, wrestling, not so much with if I've got too many pounds on me, um, but really I'm wrestling with which reality will I choose and how will I live in it? Which means I have to ask myself some serious questions every day, every week. Like, hey, Jackie, how are you complicit in promoting and perpetuating this not enough narrative about the female body? How's it going with that, Jackie? I have to ask myself, hey, Jackie, are you willing to work hard? I mean, it's going to take some easier fight to go up against all of these messages we constantly hear and bombarded with about being thin and sexy and young. Are you willing to fight for truth, for God's story, for God's story that brings freedom to her body and your body and his body? See, this is real stuff. 
And I wonder if more and more of us just rejected, you know, these not enough narratives and we fought like easers to replace the cultural and quite frankly, the church's messages about our bodies, if eventually we might birth a shift, if slowly we might walk confidently into our own skin and give others permission to do the same, if we might actually start to see God's story prevail. One thing I know for sure, our Jesus, he wants freedom. He wants freedom for his women and girls, and yes, for his boys and men. And he's on the move to change this narrative. And I believe he's looking for a few bodies in which he can dwell that will act on his behalf. So I think I'll end this podcast with the words from Gloria Steinemann. Sometimes we must put our bodies where our beliefs are. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.